0: you uh, listen in on almost any discussion about personal suffering, it's not going to be long before the conversation turns to the failure of friends. It's almost universal. Suffering people, they will talk to you about their hour of need and they will describe small and treasured blessings from other people and the comfort that they bring but are then alongside that always is that wider deeper sense that friends have failed every book that i've read about someone suffering whether christian or not it includes that experience every pastoral conversation i've had with someone going through a difficulty one way sooner or later they will turn to it and i actually know that it that it's been the conversation uh, the subject of conversation at least in some of the home groups this last week, as, uh, last few weeks as we've looked at the book of Job. Job is this book above all others that explores the agony of suffering and as, as um, Dan said we've looked at various aspects of that. We've looked at the role of Satan and God in Job's suffering. We've We've, we've examined why Job could claim that he is an innocent sufferer. Last week we looked at the, um, um, uh, the freedom actually that God gave Job to complain and protest and cry out to God and, and wrestle for the truth, to air his doubts and his questions in the face of suffering. But, but today we're going to look at this other dimension of this book of Job, Job's friends. Because Job, too, like every other sufferer I've met, had friends who ultimately failed him. Just as suffering is inevitable, it seems, the um, ultimate inability of friends to really supply our deepest needs is inevitable. So, uh, this morning we must then take some time to try to examine the failure of these friends. Try to understand it so that we can at least come closer to being the friends that we should be to those who suffer. So, finally, we, we will look at perhaps why it is that Job's friends and everyone else's friends ultimately can't satisfy. What do Job's friends demonstrate to us then? Well, the first thing that um, they demonstrate is that they are too quick to speak. Now, at first, you might say that is patently untrue. Uh, I, I read to you about how the, uh, how the friends uh, hear of Job's trouble, they come from afar, they agree to um, uh, uh, go and see him, they could hardly recognise him, we, we see, they begin to weep aloud, tear their robes, sprinkle dust on their heads and then they sat on the ground with Job, verse 13 of chapter 2, for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. They are, in a sense, model uh, uh, comforters, intentionally coming to sympathise with him and comfort him, him, weeping with him, mourning with him, sitting with him in silence. It's very, very important for us to realise that in our moments of need, so often it's not particularly words that we need. It is the presence of another person. It is um, uh, someone turning up with with a meal for us because we frankly have lost our appetite and we haven't got the energy to, to, to uh, make a meal. But they provide it and they help us. It's, it's, a, it's a card to put on the mantelpiece. It's a gentle hand touching us. It's, it's, it's someone just coming and washing the dishes because the house has got in a mess because we feel in such a state. And not not just once, but over time. That is That is fundamentally what what we need so often when we are going through a difficult time. And these friends, they do it without offering a single word for a week, seven days and seven nights. After that, Job then begins to pour out his agony and uh, it prompts Eliphaz the Temanite to speak. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, That that on its own is a slightly ominous opening. He replied. Job hadn't asked a question. Job wasn't demanding a reply from Eliphaz, but Eliphaz feels he must reply. And uh, uh, after just this first speech of Eliphaz, Job will come to a pretty damning conclusion about his friend's chapter 6, verse 15, if you want to just flick to it. We will be just working through Job as we look at the friends. My brothers, he says, are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with uh, melting snow, but but that stop flowing in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. But Job... Your friends have travelled from far off. Your friends have sat with you for 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 a whole week, just being alongside you. Are they uh, undependable? Well, yes, they are. Even after that, they have spoken too quickly. You know, any pastor who who reads this and and, and sees this. My, myself in particular, frankly, will be filled with guilt, I think, at this point. Uh, gone are the days when pastors could sit with their church members for hours upon hours um, if, they, if they ever could. And uh, pastors like Eliphaz are so quick to open our mouths, to offer theological wisdom. Many of you will know that my inadequacies as a pastor and on escape apologising for being far too like Eliphaz sometimes. But it's not just pastors. In a sense it's all of us. You know, it's just, just we need to get the answer in. We become tired of just being alongside that person. They need to they need to snap out of it. They need to see the truth and they need to they need to buck their ideas up and they need to, to uh, get going again. And uh, Job says of such people, they are as undependable as intermittent streams. The next failure starts to unfold as well as we look at Eliphaz's Speech. Um, Eliphaz reveals that they think they understand, but they don't. It's a very commendably cautious beginning to his speech. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be patient? He says in chapter 4, verse 2. But who can keep from speaking and he tries to bring the truth to Job in a gentle and roundabout way. Verse 12 of chapter 4, a word was secretly brought to me on my ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when deep sleep falls on people. Fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shaken. On he goes. Uh, he's, he's, he's trying gently to introduce Job to some, uh, some truth that he feels he must here, here are the truths that he wants to introduce to him. First truth is found actually in chapters uh, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. God is just, he says. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow, uh, sow trouble reap it. God is just. God protects the innocent and brings trouble on the wicked, as surely as harvest follows sowing. And the Bible is full of such assertions. Um, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. It's exactly the same, more or less, as what Eliphaz is saying. Secondly, says Eliphaz, verse 17, No one is righteous. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Or again, as the Apostle Paul puts it famously in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. So, if, 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 if um, a person reaps what they sow and no one is righteous, we should... We should live in fear of God. We should humble ourselves before God. We should cast ourselves upon him as people who, who deserve nothing good and yet can only plead for his mercy. Verse 8, for instance, um, I know I've already read that, so let, let me go on to verse 11. The lion perishes for lack of prey and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. That lion's fall. Surely we should live in uh, in reverent fear, or um, chapter five verse sixteen, um, or fifteen. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful, so that the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. In other words, in other words, Job, Job you just must appeal to God as a poor and lowly and humble person, you will be saved. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5 verse 16, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. God, says uh, Eliphaz, is clearly disciplining Job, verse 17 of chapter 5, blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, or as Hebrews 12 verse 7 says, endure hardship as discipline. These are biblical truths that are found everywhere. They're gospel truths in a sense. God is just. No one is righteous before God. We must humble ourselves before God, confess our sins, cast ourselves upon his mercy, seek the forgiveness that is found only in the death of Jesus. And once we are forgiven in that way, then suffering no longer serves as a punishment, but it does come as a discipline. Those are are biblical New Testament truths. Eliphaz is speaking the truth, but Eliphaz is wrong. Wrong, because he hasn't seen what we saw in chapters 1 and 2 in the throne room of heaven that God was not trying to drive out some sin that he'd seen in Job discipline him for some failure at all God amazingly in this instance was demonstrating the, the, the integrity and the nobility of Job's character neither Job nor the friends can see that So, the friends shouldn't have been so quick to think that they could diagnose what was going on. Eliphaz thinks he understands. But he doesn't. And interestingly, when you look through all the speeches of the friends that come after that, I at least can see nothing new that they say to the end of the book of Job. They just reiterate those simple basic truths in one form or another. They've got nothing else to say, they just say it with greater and greater vehemence. They think they understand. They don't. But one thing that does become clearer as the uh, Uh, the story unfolds and the conversation unfolds is that actually they're not ultimately concerned for Job's welfare or for God's glory. In the end, the most important thing to them is themselves. Now, it only slowly becomes clear. Let Let me plot it as we go through the book of Job. It's very, very important. Chapter 8, for instance, Bildab the Shuite speaks and uh, his speech looks like it is, it is zealous for God. How long will you say such things, Job? He's been complaining again. Uh, Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Soon, though, they have abandoned um, careful consideration of Job's complaints, and they're just re- resorting to uh, caricaturing him. Um, uh, Zophar in chapter 11, for instance, just turn on there. Um, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? While no one, will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Well, Job didn't say that. He said he didn't understand. He said he longs for deeper understanding. He never said he was absolutely pure. He always said, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, his innocence was based on his willingness to confess his sin, not his absolute purity. They're caricaturing him. And by the time uh, uh, Eliphaz gets his um, uh, turn again, they have moved on to open condemnation. Turn with me to Job chapter 15. Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with hot east winds? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafter. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine, your own lips testify against you. Says Aliphaz. And not surprisingly, Job turns and criticizes him. Chapter 16, verse 2. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. And this um, uh, tongue lashing exposes the depths of their heart. Bildad the Shuite in uh, Job 18 becomes more and more clear. When will you end these speeches? Be sensible and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place, and, uh, and so on, he goes. Or Zophar, in uh, chapter 20, the Namathite, my troubled thoughts prompt me to answer, because I am greatly disturbed, I hear a rebuke that dishonours me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. Did you hear that? We are considered stupid. I hear rebuke that dishonours me, 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 they are saying. In particular, as men, they are enraged that their intelligence and their honour should be impugned. Don't go near a hurting person if you want to avoid criticism. Like like an uh, uh, an injured dog, they bite. Even people who want to help them. But actually true friends can take a bit of that, can't they? A bit of friendly fire. Unless those true friends ultimately are just about massaging their own egos. Unless it appears at first to be about caring for the sufferer, but it's actually about me. It's about me providing answers to that person. It's about me being their saviour. It's about me being appreciated as a kind person. It's about me being loved for my own deeds. It's about me being respected as a really kind person who not only sat with this sufferer for seven days, but I then sorted him out. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. And the third time that uh, Eliphaz speaks in Job 22, he is leading the charge against Job verse for? Is it for your piety that God rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is it not your, wic- is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave them no water to the weary and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you are a powerful man owning land and an honoured man living on it. You sent away widows empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why And peril terrifies you, and on he goes, it's all lies. This is the desperate strategy of the defeated fundamentalist. Rather than carefully think through Job's complaints, rather than acknowledge areas of ignorance and confusion, rather than show love and let time work out the truth of what's going on, Now, the ideological fundamentalist just throws mud. Throws lies. Eliphaz would rather invent reality than engage with the real world. The real world is that Job really is an innocent man. You you see that in fundamentalisms of all kinds. The fundamentalist atheists who uh, write that religion poisons everything. What a a ridiculous statement that is. The the fundamentalist um, um, uh, um, pro-gay complainers who just say anyone who thinks that, uh, um, uh, that heterosexual marriage is the best way is clearly just a rabid, vicious, murderous homophobe. But you see it amongst fundamentalist Christians too. That's the problem. There's just enough of it about in God's church to actually bring great dishonour on God's Church. No, these these friends should have sat. They should have reflected. They should have waited. They should have tried to help Job in the confusion of his circumstances and instead they had a clear theology, remember, of biblical truths that then reality had to be crowbarred into it. Now we must be so, so careful as God's people. Remember it was the theologically orthodox Pharisees who on one occasion put their hands over their ears and rushed at Jesus to murder him. Such is the danger that is facing these friends. And after they have attacked Job in that vicious way they sulk. Look at chapter 25. The main thing I want you to see is how short the chapter is. Bildad is resigned. He blusters a few uh, truisms about God, but it's basically a petulant grump. And Job is mercilessly sarcastic to his silenced uh, opponents. Verse 26. Yeah, chapter 26, verse 2. How you have helped the powerless. How you have saved the arm that is feeble. What advice you have offered to one without wisdom. What great insight you have displayed. Who has helped you utter these words? Whose spirit uh, spoke from your mouth? They have been exposed as puffed up, self-obsessed fools. As Abraham Lincoln once said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. But they won't remain silent. And then Job pours out his complaint for chapter, five chapters at least, uh, as the others have apparently uh, slunk away to lick their wounds. On he goes, complaining. And you might imagine, when we read in uh, chapter 31, verse 40, the words of Job are ended, that we've got to the end. But no, up pops this Uh, And fourth so-called friend, Elihu, a youth, note, verse 6 of chapter 32, Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful and not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom but it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me, and I too will tell you what I know. Uh, Frankly, Elihu makes painful reading for me because you might be surprised to learn I was once young. Um, and I was far too like Elijah. As Elihu speaks on, he chooses to correct both Job and his older friends, but when you examine what he says, he doesn't actually say anything new. And at the end of it, even Job can't be bothered to answer him. There's something very interesting going on here. In um, 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy about the evil desires of youth. And uh, most young men, when they read it, um, you know, immediately they think, lost. But look at what um, Paul actually says. I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy 2, 22 and 23. Flee the evil desires of youth, he says. Pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. The evil desires of youth, says Paul, are pride, self-assertion, overconfidence in our own cleverness, quarrelsomeness, rather than righteousness, faith, love and peace. He might have been thinking about a liking. Now, you can't grow old in the click of a finger. We can't escape learning those lessons sometimes the hard way. But we can make it a little bit easier as we think about what Scripture says, we reflect on it. And we seek to avoid being young Elies. What an indictment then of these friends that has been unfolding in these chapters. Job, it seems, is in part calling us to be friends to sufferers who avoid the pitfalls of these false friends, who are slow to speak, who do not think that we have all the answers, and in particular, who are genuinely, deeply, passionately committed to the welfare of those who suffer, to finding um, uh, Uh, To them finding in their own time the God who is rich in mysterious love and faithfulness and goodness and glory and who will sit alongside such people for as long as it takes for them to get there. Now, one such man, for instance, was John Newton. He, uh, who wrote uh, the hymn Amazing Grace. He befriended a, a man called William Cooper, great Christian poet and hymn writer from the 18th century, who suffered terribly with severe depression. And for, for years, Newton visited Cooper and sat with him through those terrible dark depressions. He um, uh, 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 eventually bought a field that lay between their respective back doors in Olney in Bedfordshire so that the painfully shy Cooper could walk um, from his own home to John Newton's back door without having to meet anyone. There were times John Newton says when there was barely seven hours passed without them seeing one another. But out of that friendship came Numerous hymns that we still sing today. How much blessing has come to us. Because one man, John Newton, was prepared to sit by a suffering person and care for him. I I could tell you as well, of faithful visitation of the sick, caring for the downcast, advocacy for the vulnerable, that happens here amongst us, patient, other-centred, God-glorifying friendships. You are are gems. I think sometimes we don't realise what gems we have amongst us. There are many of you who put others to shame and you should be encouraged by that. But I said at the beginning, in the end, it's difficult to feel anything but a universal indictment here. It's difficult for us to separate ourselves from these friends and say, I've done better. It's difficult to us avo- for us to avoid the accusation that Job brings against them that they are miserable comforters. And that may be intentional, you see. Because there is one character in the book of Job so far who has not spoken, who has sat silently, not just for seven days and seven nights, but through all the interactions so far. It is God himself. I want to suggest to you that in Job, God is the true friend. While everyone else is shouting at each other, God is remaining quietly, perhaps, perhaps ironically in one sense, One of God's virtues in the Bible is that unlike the friends, he doesn't speak quickly. It is one of the frustrations that Job has with him in the short term. But maybe actually, that's one of the best things that God does for Job. No, God is not silent for always. He will eventually answer. We will look at that in a few weeks' time. And when he answers um, Job, it will not be sort of emollient words of comfort. Uh, uh, God says to Job as he begins his speech, Brace yourself like a man for what I am going to say. What God, what Job finally, uh, what God finally will say will be Strong medicine. But for now he is silent. Why? We simply don't know. Perhaps he needed to let these foolish friends display their emptiness and self obsession. Perhaps it just it just took Job time to start to articulate clearly with clarity what his main questions were that he wanted God to answer. We saw a couple of weeks ago that it is his last speech where he gets most clear and most straightforward in, uh, uh, in speaking of his complaint to God. It may be, frankly, as, as uh, happens again and again pastorally, at the beginning, Job is just too vulnerable to hear anything. Too all over the place. Too, too, wa- too washed around like a, like, a, like a little boat in a storm. It has to settle out a little while. Perhaps. But let me say to you, I'm not trying to say this is the answer. I am not peddling an answers like the friends. In the end, there is mystery. We must acknowledge that. But perhaps there's a hint that God has to wait to do real good in Job's life. John Keats uh, described suffering as, as the, the veil of soul-making. And there is some support for that in Scripture. In Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8, we are reminded that even Jesus had to be made perfect through suffering. Jesus, says the writer, offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Son though he was... He learned obedience from what he suffered. So, if the perfect Jesus had to, in some sense, go through that experience to reach his full stature as a human being, perhaps then there is something there that indicates that there is a reason why God is silent and let Job cry for so many chapters. I'm not using it as a, a knockdown argument that says, therefore suffering is completely sorted and there are no mysteries. There will always be mysteries. But perhaps that's a little tiny window into one aspect of what God is doing. God is silent, but he's with Job. Indeed, as New Testament believers, we know God the Son, Jesus Christ, has promised, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is our true friend. Job's friends think they understand, but they don't. But God and Jesus understand at every level. God's final answer to Job at the end of the book of Job will be effectively, I know infinitely more than you, Job, and Job, you are just going to have to trust me. But God's answer beyond that in Jesus is that he not only understands intellectually, but he understands because he engages with this world, because he has identified in Jesus with us in our suffering. God became man, was despised, was rejected, was abandoned, was beaten, was tortured, was humiliated, was killed. And that God who became man says, I am still with you. In the silence. Young Elihu says at one point, I too will have my say. I too will tell you what I know, for I am full of words, he says. But Matthew says, Jesus will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice to victory. He may be silent but he is gentle and he will win. Jesus sits alongside suffering believers and when he finally does speak he says to us, I am the word And I will tell you what I know. I know the cross.